Well, good morning, Mission Church. Thanks for joining us online. My name is Zach. I'm the pastor here. And hey, before we jump into today's sermon on the book of John, I uh, just wanted to let you know that we have begun meeting in person again. We are not at Hazen High School quite yet. Um, in the meantime, we are meeting at a place called the Metropolitan Banquet Hall, not too far from Hazen High School. So if you're ready to meet, we would love to have you join us. Um, it's 10 a.m., um, our service is geared um, towards more of a family setting since we're not able to have children's ministry quite yet. Um, but just wanted to let you know that. Thank you for joining online. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 18. We're going to look at 27 verses. Now here's what's incredible about this passage. Um, two things. The first is this. Have you ever wondered why did Jesus have to die. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? This passage tells us exactly why. And not just that, here's what's amazing is um, the whole entire Bible up until this point has been leading us to this very moment. So if you have ever wondered, um, what is the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Malachi, this whole entire Old Testament, what is the storyline of the Old Testament leading to? And the answer is this person, Jesus, and this moment we're about ready to look at, the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. All of the Bible is about leading up to this moment. In this passage, let's look at it together. It teaches us and reveals to us why Jesus had to die. So, verse 1, let's just jump right into it. This is John chapter 18, verse 1. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden. Huh. I don't know if you've noticed that before. Where there was a garden. Now, let me ask you a question. Where's the very first place in all of the Bible where you read about a garden? You know that? It's in Genesis chapter 2. It's, it's on the second page of the Bible. The very first place we read about a garden is the Garden of Eden, the place where God's presence is residing with humanity, with Adam, with Eve, but it's also the very place where Adam and Eve disobey God and sin and brokenness and death enter into the world. The very place where sin enters into the world is a garden and the very place where sin gets taken care of starts in a garden. So this is, this is no coincidence here. This is the providence of God. And so Jesus 
is in this garden, it says, which he and his disciples entered. Now, this is for sure a private garden. So um, most likely some wealthy, maybe man or woman or both husband and wife, they were supporters of Jesus. They owned this garden. And here they are saying, Jesus, use it as you may. Because we're going to find this is a place where they met frequently. And, and I love this. And maybe there's just a... a application in this for you. Maybe God has blessed you. Maybe God's provided for you like this wealthy benefactor who had this garden and said, here, Jesus, use this. Use this for ministry. And so, you know, let me ask you, what what ways has God blessed you for the purpose that you may be a blessing to others for gospel purposes or ministry purposes. Maybe he's blessed you with a great home and maybe he's blessed you with a vacation home. Maybe he's, I don't know, he's blessed you. And here you have a wealthy benefactor saying, I want to bless and provide for Jesus. Here, use this incredible garden. It's a private garden. In verse two, it says, now Judas, who betrayed him also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now this, this is important here. He, he knew the place. Jesus is not going to the garden to hide. He's going to the garden to be found. Jesus knows what's about ready to take place. He is not running. He is not fleeing. He is not hiding. He is going there to be found by his betrayer. Let's keep reading. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers with the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So just stop here. Do you feel the weight of this moment. John, who wrote the Gospel of John here, is, is trying to help us set a scene in our minds of what's going on. It says, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers, now this Greek word for band, it's cohort, this, this literally is describing, a, it, it's like a Roman military term. This would have been um, up to 1,000 soldiers. That, that was a cohort here. At a minimum here, we're thinking 200. So you have anywhere from 200 to 1,000 soldiers showing up to arrest Jesus. And John, our author, says, but, but listen, not only was Judas there, not only was there a band, a cohort of 200, 1,000 soldiers, but there were some officers from the chief priests. That is, these are like police officers here. So you have this band of soldiers, so you have the National Guard showing up, and if that's not strong enough, you have these police officers, you've got a whole police force showing up, and then with them are the Pharisees. These are the, the religious leaders, the judges, and they have lanterns, they have torches, and they have weapons. Try and imagine this scene in your mind. It's in the middle of the night. It's dark. Jesus is with his disciples, and all of a sudden they hear this marching. And it is a band of hundreds of soldiers. 
and police officers. They have lanterns. They have torches. They have weapons. This is a statement of power and of authority. And they are coming to take Jesus. Verse 4, then Jesus, don't miss this, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Okay, it is the soldiers that should be dragging Jesus out. It is the soldiers that should be doing the questioning and the roles have been reversed. Jesus steps forward willingly. Why? Because he knows everything that's going to take place. He knows that he is on his way to the cross. And it is not him who is questioned. It is him questioning them. Hey, who, who is it that you are seeking? Verse 5, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, in the Greek, the Greek is literally I am. Um, this he part, it's actually not in the Greek. It's literally I am. And this is very purposeful. Why does Jesus just say I am rather than I am he? Well, if you know your Old Testament, you know that the personal name of God um, is Yahweh. Um, so anytime you read the Old Testament and you come across the word Lord and it's spelled in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it shows up nearly oh, well over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. Anytime you come across the word Lord, it's Yahweh. And in the Hebrew, it literally is translated I am. Do you remember Exodus, the very beginning? God shows up to Moses in a burning bush and God tells Moses, you are to go to Egypt. You are to set the people of Israel free from their slavery. And Moses says, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. They're going to ask me who, what God told you to come set us free. They're, Moses asks God, who am I supposed to say you are? And what does God say? Tell them, I am sent you. Yahweh, I am sent you. And so when Jesus says, I am, he's, he's, he's not just making a statement about him being Jesus, the one that they are looking for. He's making a statement about his identity. He is Yahweh. Jesus is Listen to this. I love this. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. So you read this passage and you go, wow, what a statement of power and authority. You have a thousand soldiers, a police force, and religious leaders with torches and weapons show up. And if there's any question of who is really actually in authority, Jesus makes it clear. They may have weapons. They may be outmanning Jesus and his disciples 100 to 1, but Jesus shows that literally 
with the word of declaring who he is, he can knock them on their faces. At the very word of Jesus, they fall to the ground. So, 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 make no mistake, Jesus is in control. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says to Peter, don't you realize I could call on 12 legions of angels and they'd be here in a moment to, to take care of these people? <laughs> Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control of this moment. Verse 7, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. I wonder what the disciples were feeling in this moment. The disciples who are there, they've got to be scared out of their wits. They are surrounded by hundreds of soldiers. They have swords. They have these torches their lives are very at stake. And, and, and Jesus steps in front of them. Says, I'm who you're looking for. You let these men go. This is a command. You, you let these men go. How often do you find yourself feeling like things feel out of control? Feeling like you are outmanned a hundred to one. In that moment, remind yourself, Christ is with you. And by the very word of his voice, by the very command of his voice, he can knock any situation in our life on its back because Jesus is in control. Not your problems, not your stress, not your anxiety, not your worry, not that arrogant person in your life. Jesus is in control and has control. And you're going to see here, at least Peter, he's confident. He's going, yeah, yeah, Jesus, you tell him. You tell him that you're going to let us go. You, you tell him who's in control. May we never forget that Jesus, he is in control, despite what your circumstances might feel like. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword... I don't know where he gets a sword. This is not a dagger. This is a sword. This is not a pocket knife. Somehow Jesus picks up a, or Peter picks up a sword and, and he drew it and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Which, I mean, I didn't realize this until I was studying the, the, the passage this week. I've read this passage so many times in my life and it never really hit me. What, why did he cut off his ear? Like, is, is Peter like full of precision and like, I'm just going to take off his ear? No, 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 no. This is a miss, okay? Peter, in his act of 
Some would say courage, others would say stupidity, maybe it's a little bit of both. Peter pulls out his sword and he misses and he cuts off the servant's ear. Luke's gospel, I believe it's Luke's gospel, tells us that, Pete, that Jesus takes this servant's ear and heals him like that. And it says the servant's name was Malchus. By the way, any time in scripture, you see this in the book of Acts, especially where, where people like start getting named really specifically, um, it's, it's probably because they came to faith. The reason why John knows that this guy's name who got his ear cut off was Malchus was probably because he came to faith and John got to know him and know his name. So he's not just some random servant. No, no, no. This was Malchus. Remember that moment? Remember when he got his ear cut off? Jesus healed him and he, he later came to faith. Peter cuts off his ear. Verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, what does he say? Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The whole sermon is based on this single, single statement. Shall I not drink the cup? Now, in the Old Testament, this phrase, the cup, it comes up a handful of times. It comes up in Psalms, it comes up in Isaiah, um, and it always, always is a metaphor. And the metaphor is speaking of suffering and divine To speak of the cup is to speak of suffering, a cup of suffering and divine wrath. And do you hear what Jesus is saying? Peter, put your sword away. I'm in control, Peter. Did you not just see that I said my name and they all fell on their backs? and staggered to their feet. Don't you understand, Peter? I'm in control. Put the sword away. Shall I not drink the cup of suffering and wrath that the Father has given me? The Father, God the Father has given this cup of suffering and wrath to Jesus to drink. Why? What has Jesus done to deserve suffering? What has Jesus done to deserve wrath? Why must Jesus drink this cup of suffering and wrath? He must drink it so that we don't have to. Jesus must drink the cup of suffering and wrath so that you don't have to. John 3, 36. This is earlier on in John's gospel. It says, whoever believes in the Son 
has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Do you hear this? But the wrath of God remains on him. Those who do not trust in Jesus, obey Jesus, surrender their lives to Jesus, the wrath of God remains on them. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, it's wrath. God is a God of love. He's also a God of justice, isn't he? God is a God of perfect justice. And what we have done is we have sinned. We continually sin, do we not? We have sinned against God. We have sinned against others. And what we justly deserve, so I'll just put myself in this category. What I deserve is not life. What I deserve is not eternity. What I deserve is not a relationship with God. My past, my mistakes, my sins, I've got a nasty track record of disobeying God. I've got certain seasons where it was del outright deliberate disobedience to God. What I deserve, what I really deserve is death. What I deserve is to drink the cup of suffering and wrath. And we live in a culture that wants to like deny that. How can God be just, a God of justice, if our sins are never dealt with? You've lied to people. You've hurt people. You've cheated people. You've chosen arrogance and self-righteousness. Like you, 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 you've chosen lust. Have you not? Is, is, it, is, is God just if he just says, oh, no big deal, you hurt all of these people, you cheated all these people, You've turned that woman into um, a, a, a piece of property, if you will, or an object. That, that's okay, that's fine. No, 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 no. If God is a God of justice, then what we deserve is punishment for that. Do we not? Those of you who have children, when they disobey you, you understand. You can't just go, well, you know what? Would you just mind not doing that? No, no, no. What do you do? You punish them because you need them to understand that their actions of disobedience, there's a weight to them and there is justice that needs to be done. And, and, and the justice that we rightly deserve, it's death, it's suffering, it's wrath. And Jesus said, I will drink the cup so they don't have to. Jesus says, I will drink the cup of suffering and wrath for all the sins Zach Dunkley has committed. I'll drink it so he doesn't have to. 1 Thessalonians says this, 
For they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God, living and true God. The Apostle Paul is writing this, and he's writing to the Thessalonians, and he's just celebrating with them how they've turned from their sin, they've trusted in Jesus. Listen to this, and it says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why did he have to die? Why does Jesus know he has to die? Why does Jesus say, Peter, put away the sword? Here's why. Jesus had to drink the cup of suffering and wrath so that you don't have to. I think that you would do well to just meditate on that and pray through that all week long. And just praise Jesus that this is what he's done for you. This is what he's done for you. He's, He's drank the cup so you don't have to. This is why he came to die. Let's finish out the rest of the passage. It says, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews, they arrested Jesus and they bound him, but they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest of that year. So Caiaphas is the high priest. Annas was like, he, Annas was the high priest before. And the reason why Caiaphas was now the high priest, even though Annas was still living, is because you literally bought the priesthood. It was corrupt. And so it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Uh, This is so just, it's just pointing out the fact that the unjust rulers of that day, Caiaphas and Annas, they said, oh, we got to put some Jewish man to death. Maybe it's Jesus, and we need to do it for the good of the people. And what they don't know is they are doing the very will of God. They have their agenda in mind, which is dark and evil, and God uses their dark and evil plan to display the glory of God. This is is what God does. God takes the evil in our world, the evil plans, the evil agendas of people, and he redeems them. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, since that disciple was known to the high priest. He entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, the other disciple here is probably John the Apostle, The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl, don't miss this here. It is a girl. It is not a woman. It is a girl. It is not a woman of power. It is a servant girl. This girl is, what, 12 years old? 13 years old? She's a servant. She has no power. She has no voice. Just keep that in mind. And the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also 
are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter said, I am not. I'm not. He doesn't just deny Jesus. He denies Jesus to a girl, a, a junior high girl with no position and no authority. Don't you read this and go, wait a second. Like literally 20 minutes ago, he pulls out a sword against an army of hundreds of people and starts swinging in it. I mean, how does he go from courage to absolute coward? You ever thought about that? Here's what I think happened. If there is anybody who has confidence in Christ Jesus, it's Peter. That's why he pulled out the sword. He didn't pull out the sword because he thought he was awesome with the sword. He pulled out the sword because he knew that Jesus is with him and Jesus would find a way. He is confident in his identity in Christ. He is confident. I've got Christ with me. I cannot lose. And now all of a sudden he turns into a coward. Why? Because he has lost sight of his identity in Christ. Has he not? And I point that out because isn't that at the root of every single one of our cowardly actions? At the root of every sin, at the root of every disbelief, at the root of every fear, at the root of every anxiety, at the root of every worry, at the root of, of anger and impatience, at the root of all of the missteps that we take as followers of Jesus, the very root of it is this. You've lost sight of your identity in Christ. The reason why you are worried and anxious, yeah, it may be because you've got a lot of hard things in your life right now, but the root of the problem isn't that you have hard things in your life right now. The root of the problem is that you are failing to find your identity in Christ in the midst of those hard and difficult things. The reason why you're falling into fear and anxiety is you are not finding your identity in Christ and knowing that he is in control and knowing that he has given you the Holy Spirit and the Spirit lives in you and dwells in you and is there to comfort you and empower you. What, G what Peter has done here is he has lost his identity in Christ and he needs to recapture it. And you and I need to do the same thing. When you find yourself worried, ask yourself this question. What am I believing about my identity in Christ? When you find yourself anxious or stressed, ask yourself the question, what am I believing about my identity in Christ? Or you find yourself getting really angry or, or bitter or resentful, ask yourself the question, what am I believing about my identity in Christ? And the fact of the matter is you've probably lost sight of your identity in Christ, that you are a child of God in Christ Jesus. You are loved in Christ Jesus. You are forgiven in Christ Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you through Christ Jesus. He loses sight. Let's finish this out. It says, The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret 
Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if I had said is what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. What we see here is a picture of the injustice that Jesus faced. Not just that he gets smacked in the face for a genuine statement that he makes, but what was going on here was a misrepresentation of justice. According to the law in that day, you, you didn't interrogate the defendant, you interrogated the witnesses. It's one of the reasons why Jesus says, ask, ask witnesses. All these people here, even people who are sitting on, on the judgment seats, they've heard me teach before. They know, have them witness against me. And so what we see happening here, and we're going to see it also next week in next week's sermon, is that Jesus's trial is a sham. It is an absolute picture of injustice. Jesus suffered injustice. Suffered injustice. And some of you have suffered injustice too. Or we see in our culture people suffering with injustice. And we need to be reminded, Jesus walked that path. In verse 25, now Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, there's some other people there, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. Third time. And at once a rooster crowed, just as Jesus had told Peter what happened. You know what I love? I love that God in his sovereign grace and his sovereign providence would have it that Peter fails. Jesus said, Peter, this is going to happen. You're going to fail me. You're going to deny me three times. And I love that this is a major part of the storyline of Jesus' crucifixion. Why? Because haven't we all done something similar to this? Haven't we all failed Jesus in one way or another? Haven't we all done what Peter's done? And what's going to happen to Peter? Peter's going to be restored by Jesus himself. Peter's going to be forgiven because Christ drank the cup of suffering and wrath that Peter deserved. Peter's going to end up being the patriarch of the local church. And here's a man who failed Jesus over and over and over again. Here's what's amazing. 
You and I have failed Jesus, have we not? Maybe this morning you did. Some point during this week, maybe even during this day, you're going to fail Jesus. And Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore no condemnation, no guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because Jesus drank the cup of suffering and wrath so that you don't have to. So, so maybe an application, maybe what you ought to do is take a moment and reflect on your life right now and take a moment and confess some sins in your life. Confess them. And maybe the mental picture you put in your mind is this. Confess these sins and just put them in a cup. Put these sins, the sin of lust, the sin of pride, the sin of selfishness, the, the sin of anger, and, and just take these sins and put them in a cup. And then just in your mind, I want you to just picture Jesus on the cross drinking these sins and, for, and dying for them. And just take a moment and just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you that I'm free and forgiven. And let me close by just simply saying this. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Have you made that decision to take the cup of all of your sins and said, I don't want to drink this. Jesus, you drank this for me, so here it is. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? If you haven't, I want to just close by giving you an opportunity to do that. And, and Romans um, 10 just tells us that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts that he has died on the cross and he's risen from the dead, we will be saved. And so would you just pray with me this? And maybe you've prayed this prayer before and it wouldn't hurt praying it again. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to drink the cup of suffering and wrath so that I don't have to. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. And right now, Jesus, I want to surrender my life to you and make you my Savior. I want to trust in you. I want you to wipe away all of my sins. And I believe that you have wiped away my sins when you died on the cross and that you have conquered death through your resurrection. And today I trust in you as my Savior and I want to receive the salvation you freely give. Amen. I hope you prayed that prayer. I hope you have made a decision for Christ today, whether it's the first time or maybe you just prayed that prayer to remind yourself of the gospel that you have in Christ Jesus. Let's spend some time worshiping.